Welcome to Dissecting Education, where we take a spherical look at the education landscape from many vantage points. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks. Glad you're here with us today. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Dissecting Education. I am so thrilled today to have a very special guest with us. Amelia Parnell is the Vice President for Research and Policy at NASPA, the Student Affairs Associators in Higher Education, where she leads many of the association's scholarly and advocacy-focused activities. Amelia's policy and practitioner experiences include prior roles in association management, legislative policy analysis, internal audit, and TRIO programs. Amelia writes and speaks frequently about topics related to student affairs, college affordability, student learning outcomes, leadership in higher education, and institutions' use of data and, and analytics. She is the author of a forthcoming book, You Are a Data Person, Strategies for Using Analytics on Campus, and host of a new podcast, Speaking of College. Amelia currently serves on the board of directors for EDUCAUSE and is an advisor to several other higher education organizations. She holds a PhD in higher education from Florida State University and a master's and bachelor's degree in business administration from Florida A&M. Thank you so much for being here. All right, well, welcome and thanks again for being here. Um, so kick us off, tell us a little bit about you that we didn't hear in your bio. Uh, let's see. So things that I often do share that are not in my bio. First things first, I am originally from Florida, which you probably could glean from where I've got my degrees. Uh, but I grew up in rural Lake City, Florida, which is definitely North Florida, about 20 minutes away from the Georgia border on a farm. And I, I can honestly say that had a lot to do with my interest in education, uh, my just natural entrepreneurial spirit, uh, my desire to share what I know and build community with people that I meet. And my twin sister and I grew up there together and went to college as undergraduates to Florida A&M University. And uh, I can say that that relationship has made a big difference on me as well. So growing up, being able to learn from her, you know, having her learn from me, um, it definitely has made a big impact on how I've been able to navigate my professional journey. That's awesome. Yeah, I, um, I was looking at your, uh, at your bio a little bit and thinking about all the the ways that, that our bios overlap in terms of being uh, both uh, Knowles graduate degrees and then also working some in the advocacy space. So talk to us a little bit about your background with advocacy and how you got into that and kind of your, your take on that. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, given my role now at NASPA, it's a national organization located in Washington, D.C., naturally you're really close to policy, really close to advocacy. Those two things are really tightly coupled. Way back earlier in my career, I did not think of the work that I was doing as advocacy, but it definitely, in hindsight now, I can say it feels that way. So uh, when I was in my master's program at FAMU many years ago, I won't say how many, <laughs> I got a chance to do uh for three summers, some work with the FAMU Upper Bound Program. And at that time, I did not know about the, the federal funding that supported it so much as I did the students who showed up. And so I was there to be teaching uh, literature and composition and ACT prep and SAT prep. And I really came in every week or, you know, so with lesson plans prepared to talk with them about five paragraph essays and subject group agreement and taking the tests and test taking tips and things like that. And in between the lessons, the students would always ask me questions like, how do I find a roommate? How do I pay for college? What do I do about books? Uh, 
uh, what's it like to live on campus? And so I just left with this yearning to want to tell more of what those questions were to somebody to say, hey, you know, I know I'm doing this job, but I really want y'all to know that they keep asking me questions about this. Can we change the program? And then this time now, I can say that I still have maintained a desire to want to tell the story. As a researcher now, it feels like part advocacy. So advocating on behalf of those whose stories um, are a little bit nuanced and woven into day to day type of stuff that we do. So I think now in my role at, at NASPA, the advocacy work that we do is primarily on behalf of students. And so student focused issues, some of those relate to health and well-being. Sometimes it relates to their ability to pay for college. Sometimes it relates to what they learn in the classroom. And so there's an abundance of things that I can say I talk about, but I think advocacy at its core is informed by solid research as well as an understanding of your audience. And so pretty much anybody who wants to talk with me about the current state of college students, I'm willing to have them as a ready audience. Right. Awesome. Do you, where do you think we are, if you had to give a, a grade to the overall college scene, um, and it, that's a broad brush, I know some do a lot better job than others, but where do you think we are in terms of really understanding our audience, to use your words, of like understanding the students, how well are colleges and universities doing in understanding their students in terms of mental health and equity and social justice and all of these issues that are popping up? Mm-hmm. That's tough. And so I want to say it depends. It's like the safest answer that you can get. Um, But you did make the audience pretty specific. So if you're asking about college leaders, you know, I would probably say I'm going to make a a sidebar and say, I think that everyone on the campus is a leader to some degree. But if you mean senior leaders, presidents, cabinet, something like that, I'd give it a solid C. And that's because I think I want to take into consideration how much the landscape is changing all the time. Um, And that's not a critique to say that that C means anything more if you're a large four-year institution with 30,000 students versus a small private institution with only 1,000. I'm going to say a a solid average just because every student is different. So when we talk about large-scale issues like mental health, mental health for first-generation students looks very different from mental health for an adult returning uh, student, for example. It could look very different. So I think it's a hard task. I think if we ever reach a point of an A, that would be misleading. So if I, if I were to find a senior leader that says, I know everything about my students that's going on, I'd say, well, you have not spent as much time as, as you probably should with them. So a C is not bad. I think a C to some might seem average, but a C is not a D or an F. And so thinking about grading, I think that leaves a lot more room to do more, um, but also acknowledges that we're not wholly failing them. Now, are there some places where we could do better? I think for sure. I think there are some definite aspects of college that I wish more leaders knew about. Uh, I do think that that's another story for another time. Um, But in the current state they're in right now, I I think a solid C would be it. Um, Now, if someone listens to this and disagrees, you know, give them (laughs) them my regards and say, hey, I'm I'm grading with a hard pin right now. That's right. No, it's okay. It's okay. Going back to what you said about mental health, Um, Do you think that that's one of the components that has really been highlighted over the past year for you, or even just over the past couple of years? Mm -hmm. Well, I get that question a lot, um, oftentimes about current trends in higher education. And so my, my work at NASPA, and NASPA being a nonprofit organization that's primarily focused on student affairs or student life, student services, uh, I do a lot of conversations. I have a lot of conversations with vice presidents of student affairs. And oftentimes when we talk, I ask them, like, what's at the top of your list, like the top of your worry list, the things that just really, truly keep you uh, busy and, and concerned about the current state of how students are doing on your campus. And almost always mental health is at the top. And so just by default, it was like that before. 
before the pandemic. It was like that probably a decade ago up to now. So I don't know if that's an indication that we're not making any progress or if it's just that it's, a, it's a, such a significant topic that we have much more work to do. So I'd say in the space that I'm in, it's the same topic, just a different version of it, how to do telehealth, you know, how to maintain students' privacy across state lines and things like that. So whether we're talking about the very practical how to make mental health resources more available to students or the more macro, are we still in a mental health crisis with students? I, I think regardless of the vantage point, it is probably still going to be one of the number one topics that concerns all of us. Right, that makes sense. So we saw that you do some work with Educause, and I have a special place in my heart for Educause, and I'll tell you a, a funny story. So many years ago, uh, when I was much younger, um, I actually was a runner-up for a job at Educause, and okay. um, they flew me out at the time. I think they've moved to DC now, but they were in San Francisco and um, wonderful people and got really dedicated to the cause in, in that. And I was very green and rightly, um, rightly not selected for the, job, for the job, but it was a wonderful experience, wonderful cause, wonderful people, and just kind of wanted to use this platform to, to talk a little bit about that and, and talk about it from your vantage point and what makes, uh, made you want to get involved with it um, and, and how you feel about the work that they're doing. Yeah, Educause, I'm completely biased, but I have to say it. I think they're a, a, just a wonderful organization. It's a combination of a focus on technology and Educause uh, focuses on education, you know, higher education specifically. So the the combining of the the mission of delivering on the promise of higher education and doing so with technology-enabled solutions just fascinates me. So I got an invitation, which I'm very grateful for, to be a part of their um, board. And so I've been on it now for two years and uh, get to be in some subcommittee work related to auditing and you know things like that. So it's, it's in the weeds, but I like it. Uh, I'm, I'm passionate about the work of Educause, mostly because I think it provides access to a lot more conversations about the, the role of technology. Sometimes when you think technology, you think plug and play. Play. buy something, turn it on, flip a switch and it should work. But there's a heavy emphasis on teaching and learning as well. So how technology can be used to actually make the classroom or virtual experience better and more fruitful for students, um, how technology can be leveraged to, to provide more efficiencies. It's a whole lot of things. Um, I, I know that when you're looking at technology, some might shy away from it and it feels like too much fast paced change, too much at once. But I think Educause has a really strong um, professional development component. There's a lot of a community there of you know, IT professionals who are more seasoned as well as those who are earlier in their career. And I think that actually opens the door for many, many more conversations. So back to the point about advocacy, they also do a lot of that too. So during the pandemic, there was a lot of conversations about broadband access, access to Wi-Fi and things in remote areas. And Educause has been definitely at the forefront of speaking up on those issues. So for those reasons and more, it's, it's the obvious focus on education and technology. It's the community of practitioners who really are passionate about students' experiences. And just honestly, it's been a rewarding experience for me. And I hope that they would say the same. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, echo, echo your sentiments about just how powerful their messaging is. And um, I do some work now with a K-12 similar organization called Future of School, which is focused on technology and really, we try to use the word innovation. And innovation and technology are intertwined, but not uh, mutually the same, right? And so I'm wondering about your perception of what innovations are happening with or without technology as the basis of them in higher ed at this, at this moment in time. I'm, I'm really glad you asked me this question. So it's something that we've been looking at probably for a solid almost to the to the month, one last, uh, over the last year. So 
uh, NASPA has for the last you know, year or so, but looking specifically at how campuses were using innovative approaches for delivering virtual support services. So knowing that many students were not physically located on a campus, their colleges had to deliver key resources like orientation, advising, you know, um, health and well-being resources and things like that. So we had a, a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to help some schools really figure out like, what could you be doing? And so we put out an open call and said, here's an opportunity for any campus that's doing something they would describe as innovative to write us, tell us more about what you're doing. And we were able to select 10 that we felt like were the most innovative and give them a, a, a small cash award. Now, to answer your question about innovation, you know, you'd think that that type of open call for applications would lead to people talking about just really, really advanced uses of technology and the brand new something they created. But frankly, they were in a pandemic that they didn't know was coming. And so the innovation looked a lot like using the technology they already had. And so um, one example, I'll give you two examples that I, that I really liked. Um, one was Houston Community College, and they have a virtual lobby. And so they used, uh, I feel like this is free promotion, but they used Zoom technology to have an kind of the equivalent of an in-person experience, but delivered virtually. So let's say uh, if you and I were students and we both had a question, we could go to the same Zoom link and be in the kind of the queue. And then someone would, would join and say, hey, what kind of help do you need? And then they would shepherd one of us to whoever we should speak to. So truly a virtual lobby delivered with existing technology. It felt innovative because they never had to do it like that before until the pandemic came. And so now that the, you know, the space is open for them to possibly get back to person, I think they might stick with it and say, hey, this was actually something that created a brand new way of us doing business and it didn't really cost anything more. Um, the second is Xavier University in Louisiana, and they have something called Cooking with Curtis. And at first, when I read the application, I thought, okay, this is probably something related to health and well-being, healthy eating, something like that, how to do this on a budget. And it was something very, very different. It was that you had they had an opportunity for students to join administrators from their homes, and they each jointly uh, from their kitchens make a meal. And as they're making the meal and about to eat the meal, they talk about the history of the university. So it's an opportunity for students to engage with administrators in ways they otherwise wouldn't. You can't have your own kitchen on a campus. You know what I mean? You couldn't have the same types of conversations. So they're sharing stories, they're sharing recipes, they're sharing history of how the university got funded, uh, founded. It's an HBCU, so there's just a lot of richness there in terms of storytelling. And so both of those things, when you use the word innovation, doesn't automatically make you think technology, but the technology enabled a brand new way of doing work. So uh, they, they ring true for me. So this shameless plug that you didn't ask for, uh, <laughs> coming up later in the fall will be a report with uh, 10 case studies. So each of those schools will have a story about how they used an, um, an innovative approach to delivering support services in a virtual environment. Oh, I love that. I love Great that. Question. And actually, it's funny. Um, it's almost exactly the work that we're doing on the K-12 level. And I can't wait to read the report and, and compare it to kind of the same sort of innovations that are happening uh, in the K-12. The, it's called the Resilient District Prize, and it's funded by the American Superintendents Association. Same thing, grant funded. And then we got to award these districts. We're in the selection process right now, so I don't have any stories, but I've read the applications. It's still, uh, still confidential at this moment. But um, same kind of thing, using what they had in innovative ways, and then how can we um, look at those and either create case studies that other people can replicate, or you know, how can you scale those even, even in your own, you know, in our case, district in, in these cases on their campuses, or if they have expansion or extension campuses or whatever. So I will be very excited actually to read that report and see what's happening at the higher ed level um, as a personal thing after being um, exposed to the same type of open call uh, innovations at the K-12 level. So thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah, the hardest part was that we had so many applications and we couldn't give the award to everybody. I think within every application, there was something unique in there. So yeah, I look forward to reading your, your results as well. Yeah, yeah, we will. We were having a similar report after um, after we did all the big announcements. So, I think that's really cool too because um, you know a lot of times, as you were saying, like people get scared off by the word technology and they think they have to be doing something way over the top, like AI or something like that. But there's so many tools that we use right now that we don't really max out the benefit or we're not using them strategically. So I think seeing that report not only will it give people ideas, but they'll be like. Oh, we have Zoom and they're comfortable with Zoom now, or you know, we use this technology. So I think that that will um, maybe make it more accessible to people who kind of shy away from it too. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I think it will. Um, so I, thinking about all the schools you're connected to and all of the the great ideas that you get to hear, um, we noticed that you have a podcast. So tell us a little bit about how you're kind of utilizing all of your great info into that podcast. Yeah, so the podcast is called Speaking of College, and I can honestly say it's kind of a, a labor of love, uh, my, my gift back to the field. It got started uh, last summer in the pandemic, and you know I had a lot more time at home. And being in the field now is, I'd say I'm closer to 20 years in than I used to be. Uh, I used to say I, over 15, but probably closer to 20 would be more accurate. And I just was thinking, I was like, you know, there've been so many times that I've been uh, fortunate enough to be a mentor to a college student or answer a quick question from a family member who has you know, someone that they know that wants to go to college. And it just dawned on me that I was like, it just seemed to be an opportunity there. Why would it have to be that you have to know somebody in order to know so much about how college works? And so knowing that I've had this much experience, I was like, what could I do to actually provide reliable answers to college-related questions, which is the hook for the show. And so speaking of college, I intentionally use the word college instead of higher education because only people in higher ed say higher ed. Oftentimes the average person says college. And so I, I wanted to create a show that would truly provide simple and un, uh, understandable you know, conversations. And so I would invite, for example, in season one, I, I invited the um, financial aid assistant director at Georgetown. And we had a conversation about financial aid, how to apply, how to manage student loans, and what's the difference between in-state and out-of-state tuition. And so my audience is honestly an audience of non-higher education professionals. And it's for that 16-year-old who wants to go back to college, or the 42-year-old who stopped out and wants to go back, or the parent of somebody, or a sister or brother of someone who's in college and they want to know how to support them. So it truly has been, like I said, a labor of love. It's work, you know, to put together the episodes and to edit them and stuff like that. And so um, there are days when I think, have I taken on too much because I, I have lots of segments in the show too where it's like an ask Dr. P part at the end where someone writes in with a question and I put a commercial break in there and so I try to make it really feel like a show and um, probably a bit of an overachiever in that regard but I, I like I like it a lot and honestly it it, it made me kind of um, remember why I chose higher ed as a field for my profession so yeah thanks for asking the question it's an opportunity to plug the show but yeah yeah, yeah we're excited <laughs> to uh, to co-promote and yeah. uh, and people tell it to I will put it in the show notes as well but say it one more time the name of the podcast where people can find it speaking of college speaking of college yeah it's a it's a personal note for me because obviously i um am a former higher ed administrator and got lots of those questions and i'm also in our family kind of for sure the person who knows the most about the college landscape and so i recently um took my niece and her friend on their college tours because neither of her parents went to college and so or traditionally they one was in the military and went kind of online during his military service and the other is from the philippines and so she had a different you know not the american system and so being able to kind of lead her through this journey 
Mm-hmm. Um, definitely made me reminded that there are so many kids like her who don't have an aunt who works in higher yeah. ed or who worked in higher ed who knew these things. And she would be very struggling. Her parents can't help her. They don't really know either. And so, yeah, having good sources of information is really critical um, for people to get on the right path and the path that best suits them and not be, you know, I, I have a, a personal passion that's about the two things that I believe in. I think someone, or one of my earliest episodes, um, and I'm going to get it wrong, so I'm not going to try to quote who told me this, but um, confirmed a personal, uh, they did an actual survey that confirmed this personal mantra of mine, which is the two things that that keep people uh, out of college or that make people leave college when they get is not being seen or not understanding the system, right? And so as an educator, my mantra is how do I make sure people are seen and feel seen and that if they're struggling that I can, you know, open my my kind of virtual office or whatever and get to them and say, if I can't help you, I'll help you find who can so that they feel like they're being, you know, uh, noticed. And then, yeah, the system is, can, can be very confusing and especially trying to find the best one for you and not, you know, what your neighbor down the street did necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very expensive decision to make, but one that can have a huge impact on uh, your journey going forward. So I, I just have to say thank you for what you're doing as well, because there are a lot of uh, a lot of people out there who need that type of resource. I just hope they can find us. Right, exactly, exactly. So I, I asked this question of every guest. I'll throw, throw the, the curve in here. Tell us an early or just a memorable education memory that you have, something that stuck with you that, that taught you something good or bad that, um, that remained with you over time? Oh, with so many. And <laughs> I, I knew you were going to ask me that question. So I've been trying to narrow down what it would be. I, I'm trying to think, do I want to go practical or do I want to go sentimental? I think I'm going to go sentimental. Uh, okay. So imagine uh, first grade. So that's probably about as early as I can, I can think back to. Uh, another shameless plug. And I ended up, I don't tweet that often, but you know, sometimes I find myself on Twitter and I happen to uh, be watching television and there was a commercial for Pizza Hut and uh, the person in the commercial had a book it pin on their shirt. And that reminded me of when I was in first grade and we did the book it uh, program. And I had a teacher who on top of getting the little coupons or whatever it was to, to save up and get the personal pan pizza she would give us a dime for every book that we read and so she had like a really well-designed thing we each had our name on it it was like a poster board and so it was my goal to fill up the poster board with as many dimes as possible so now I think I was rich at age of six it was just really special (laughs) that literally my teacher would invest in my you know progress and it was so special and you now at that age I didn't know about teacher salaries I didn't know about you know all the things that go along with trying to choose that profession but I look back over that and I think to myself like man that was so special to me not and it wasn't so much for the money it was just the fact that every time she would put a dime she'd be like yay Amelia you got you got one more book that you read and I got a personal fan pizza on top of that so my simple tweet uh, that I did was like oh book it if if people only knew what I meant when I said like oh my gosh book it which reminded me of the book thing which reminded me of a teacher who made a big impact Um, that same teacher ended up teaching me and a small group of like three other people uh, three other students at the time um, multiplication tables and two and three digit multiplication at that point that was my first glimpse of what it was like to continue to not have any boundaries on what you could learn at a certain age and so talking with my you know peers they were like we're not learning that you know what is that and I just I felt very special so um, it means a lot to have had someone invest literally invest in my development so yeah that was that was good I love that I um I have such fond memories of book it it was in a similar vein, the the teacher, whatever grade, I can't remember if it was first or second, but um, 
the, the year that we did book it, they had a treasure chest that was just for reading. So it was all like bookmarks and little like things like book jackets, like things that you or stickers that look like books. Like there was all book related treasure chest that you would get to choose from along with your, your book it, you know, personal pain pizza. So for all those companies out there that want to invest in education, you never know, like yeah. personal pizzas make a huge difference to a generation. <laughs> so Bring book it back. <laughs> Bring book it back. And reading is fundamental. Whoever said that, it's true. It's so true. So true. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine over the weekend, actually, that was visiting and she's very concerned because her kids just don't embrace reading in the way that kind of she did as a child and, and her and I share that that childhood love of reading and it is so fundamental and it and it really does kind of affect um for good or for bad your your entire future and your your comfort level in reading and being a well-rounded person I think um cannot be replaced by you know Netflix or any of that or the Google machine even right like <laughs> Gonna date myself and talk about how there was no internet, you know, when I was in, in high school. Right, same. No, there was no internet really when I was in college. So, <laughs> oh, yes, we're dating ourselves. That's all right. Yeah. Um, so, tell us about kind of a day in the life of in in your role um, at NASPA. Yeah. Um, how about today? Uh, we'll okay. talk about what I, what I did today. Yeah, so, perfect. Uh, I did a really cool podcast to end the day uh, with, <laughs> with you all. But before that, I had some internal meetings uh, with some colleagues. And so at NASPA, my role, uh, the title is Vice President for Research and Policy, which covers a lot of things. So sometimes my day is spent more doing administrative things. So being a part of NASPA's executive leadership team, uh, I'm just by nature not really an early bird. And so my day usually starts around, you know, 8.45, 9 o'clock. But today it started at 7.30. Oh. Um, because I and the, the two other VPs and president of NASPA, we had some internal um, discussions we need to finish up and re relate to our personnel practices manual, which is what all colleagues uh, who work at NASPA need to know about how we do timesheets and everything else you can imagine. So it's like mm -hmm. a 80 plus page document. And so we had to get into the weeds and the only time where our calendars would align would be 730. So it was very, very difficult. So the Monday morning <laughs> would be at the 730. But, you know, so so is, you know, such is life. Right, right. That's um, <laughs> yeah, so then later uh, in the morning, I had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with a new person on the, the team that I lead. So I have uh, 11 or 12 colleagues now that work in the research and policy area. Some do very much uh, specific stuff related to policy and advocacy, so tracking federal and state legislation, things like that. Um, another kind of subset does a lot of our publications type stuff, reports and things that we generate. And then we have a good number of people on the team who do some grant-funded research. And so uh, this particular colleague is the newest one on the team, and so I make it a point that every Every month I check in and just see how things are going and we talk about the current state of higher education. So today's topic, we talked a lot about the, um, the Gates Foundation's post-secondary education strategy because we we're part of that for some under other grant funded research. Um, later on in the afternoon, I ended up meeting uh, a couple colleagues and I with the director of the Gates Foundation's post-secondary strategy as um, he has an advisory group and we're part of it. So we meet every month and a half and today was that meeting. And then after that, I had a project-based meeting for that virtual support services project I told you about. So that's coming to a close. And so we were giving an update on the case studies and next lines of work and what to do after this. And then I was on a podcast talking about my favorite educational memories. <laughs> so yeah. as I, I would probably say, a, a day in the life is a little bit administrative, um, just being a, at that level, watching and being a, a part steward of the organization's resources. We just have to do that. Uh, some of it is team building, which I take very seriously. And I enjoy it because I feel like a, a great team builds on each other's strengths and we kind of make up um, some space experiences combined and it's a, it's a really great thing but it takes some time and I really enjoy it and then of course the work itself you know which might be part external might be part internal
internal. Um, it, I don't know that any two days are alike, but I kind of enjoy it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's um, such an interesting and kind of a mysterious world when you look at organizations like yours. Um, and like I started my career at ICUF, which was a similar, but on a state level um, for the private nonprofit schools in Florida. Mm-hmm. And it is always an interesting mix of this like highly critical policy work and, you know, the mundane pieces that are very important, like you said, resource allocation and, and being a good steward of, you know, grant funds or, or whatever else is, is happening there. So, so very, thank you for your, your insights there on that. Yeah. I know about uh, ICA from previous days when I lived in Tallahassee. Oh, there uh, you go. Yeah. Read yeah about that's, that was, well, I started my career in local government with John Marks, but I, ah. uh, with Mayor Marks, but after uh, leaving his office, I went to ICUF, and that's where I, I say I, that's where I cut my teeth in in higher ed and education policy. So yeah, yeah. So now to stop, I don't know if we're planning on having this part of the conversation. That's all right. Uh, I, so I spent uh, about seven years doing um, education policy stuff for the Florida Legislature, and so we had oh. a lot of opportunity to talk with a lot of universities and colleges. In yeah, yeah. So you you put cross paths with me. Now was was the higher education steering committee i think it changed names at some point heck hecc was that around when you were in the legislature i don't don't know the office i worked in um it was a separate office of program policy analysis and government accountability Opaga. i worked there so at various points um the office itself changed in scope so in the early early days they were truly kind of a separate entity that did more independent work near the end of the time before i left they truly got folded into legislative staff so during the earlier days i don't i don't recall having to do as much there It was truly much more like here's your scope of work and you got six months to put together a really great analysis later it was more like hey here's a topic you got two weeks to get back to us you know have necessary conversations the pace changed a lot so yeah Yeah, we should talk offline they've got too much in common I know, I know, we definitely do. Yeah, I um, was, I was a classmate of Gary Van Landingham, who was a, a yeah. administrator there, later, mm-hmm. later the director, and uh, he brought me in to do a study on um, Bright Futures, actually. I did mm-hmm. like, a contract part-time work with Opaga on a very specific um, merit aid study that they were doing around, and they just needed extra resources, extra researchers on it. So yeah, very, very uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Very, so I was, uh, I was there a little bit of time that he was there before he, before he left. Um, yeah, small yeah. world. I know, very small world for sure. Come, I have to come to live in DC before our paths reconnect. Oh, where, uh, <laughs> that's work. right. That's Open right. So funny. Yeah. So funny. Oh, I'll jump in. <laughs> I actually had a next question for you, but you said something that sparked my interest. So I'm going to go back to what you said. So yeah. you said that you really love team building with your, your vertical. What are some of your favorite ways to team build? Because I know being virtual um, can be really tricky sometimes. So, and I can tell you're really creative and fun. So what, what are you doing with your team? Oh, all, all types of stuff. So just on a day to day, you know, I, I like to do um, a Monday pun. I don't send it to all of them, only the ones who are just up for dad jokes, because you know, <laughs> the ones that make you groan are the ones that really, really get you You're like, oh, I can't believe it. But of course, it, it lights <laughs> a little bit. So as, as a team, we meet about once per month. And usually um, I try to, I, I'm still working on this, but I try to keep it um, minimal updates, you know, where everybody's kind of sitting and getting you know, this, this is what we're doing this week, next week. Um, so our next meeting is either tomorrow or next week uh, on Tuesday. And I got an article from the Georgetown Center for Education and the Workforce. And it's really like a, a quick, maybe five to 10 minute read um, about the future of work. And so I pretty much said, hey, you all in our next meeting, let's have some breakout discussions. So it's only 12 of us. So we could do probably three breakout groups of four and just 
tell me what resonated with you. Would you, would you agree with what, would you not really agree with? Do you have any predictions? What would you add to the discussion? I like those types of team building activities. They don't cost anything other than time, um, but it gives us a chance to really see each other's vantage point. So, you know, we've all had jobs before the one that we're in right now, and those types of things bring to your perspective, um, the way that you converse about the current issues and the things ahead. So uh, our, our colleague, who's a um, director of data, senior director of data analytics, has uh, uh, economics background. So she's just very cool to talk to from all things data, but then every so often I forget like, oh yeah, she's an economist. It just, it just makes <laughs> sense. And so um, it's really cool. So on a fun nature back before we had, um, you know, to not be in person, I can say that we always had a dispersed workforce. So not, at, we never, we've never had all of us in Washington DC. So we've always had colleagues who worked uh, someplace else, probably say of the 11 or 12 of us, a third are based in the DMV area and everybody else is remote. So never been an issue with that. You know, we've done virtual baby showers. We've done trivia days, all that kind of stuff. I, I made my own, um, what's the, uh, taboo, but I, I, did, I created higher ed taboo questions. It was, it was, it was fun. So some of it is just about lightening the mood, um, in a nerd, in a nerdy way. Um, some of it is just truly getting to know them. So I like the one-on-one -on -one meetings because, you know, just as you get to know each other, you, you figure out what people's interests are. Um, so it's a little bit of everything, honestly, you know, sharing reports as I get them, they share stuff with me. Um, I oftentimes like to invite them if I'm having a meeting with a funder or, or with, um, somebody that I feel like they should meet a lot of connection building. I think it's important to, to, see one's career as a point in time and your portfolio is always expanding as well as your toolbox and so it's a it's something I take very seriously but I think working in that way um it feels very much like a journey that you're on and I feel like any colleague whether they report up to you or uh, work alongside you laterally should feel like at that particular juncture in their career that's what they want to be most and it's most leveraging their skills and as long as it is I'm happy to have it as an opportunity yeah I love that I love that uh I am, and Rachel is the same, very passionate about the, the work-life balance, meaning more than just leaving work and doing things on your own, but actually kind of loving the people that you interact with every day, loving the experience that you have and not being so, you know, goal-oriented at the expense of people, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and so I love that you're doing, you know, fun virtual things, um, with your team and you know and it doesn't mean it can't be educational and be fun and it also sometimes can just be fun and that's okay too right, right. Just because that human connection uh, it enriches our experience in the workplace and it also just enriches our commitment to the organization right i mean no if you have a fun you know inclusive uh dynamic environment you want to continue to be there right yeah well, I, I think it also, um, you know, we, we do our best work all the time, you know, but I think to, to the extent that there's a bit of a balance there, uh, I do encourage um, colleagues, when you take the time off, take it off, like put the out of office message on. I can't think of too many days where something comes up that you absolutely have to handle, you know, you cannot take a day off from work. So I have to model that as well. So every year on my birthday, my twin sister and I, we spend the day together and I usually take off the day before the day after and make it like a three day thing and we end up at the beach and I'm completely unattached at all and I have no concern that when I come back and if something came up then we'll you know we'll manage it but I think that um it's tempting these days to see the biggest challenges in higher ed and feel the pressure like oh we got we can't you know we can't ever take our foot off the gas pedal we need this stuff to happen now 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 and it can both create anxiety as well as unrealistic expectations and so when we're working together of course we're all going to give the best that we have but then when it's time to take a break yeah take a break Absolutely. Great, great point. Do you, I thought, thinking about kind of the foot on the gas and maybe 
a, a separate question, but a, a related one. Um, how do you feel about the the current kind of state of higher ed as it relates to some of these smaller colleges who are really struggling in light of the pandemic, um, sometimes about technology, sometimes just about student enrollment and enrollment patterns changing, that kind of thing. What are you seeing from your vantage point? All of what you described and a little <laughs> bit more. And so it, it concerns me, not just for the uh, small private institutions, although they will probably get the, the biggest of the impact, mm -hmm. regional comprehensive institutions too. So those that are not as big as a state flagship, but not as small as a small college. Mm -hmm. um, it concerns me a lot, really, because I think that there's something that's still not uh, easily maintained, which is going to be the overall cost of college. And so I think we're seeing some movement uh, around free college naturally, and that's going to help some. But I don't think that those institutions that ha have not really prepared for a serious decline in enrollment are going to be able to withstand this without some significant changes to the business model. Now, on the one hand, change is not a bad thing, but right. I think uh, change across the board all at the same time could be really, really difficult. And so what I'm most concerned about, though, is that the professionals who work on college campus don't get so weary that they leave. Um, that's something I think a lot about in, in certain key areas, uh, like student affairs, for example. You know, the work is, is sometimes very long, very hard. Uh, working in housing, working in mm -hmm. uh, the student union, you know, the, being a mental health you know, counselor and coach, those things are very, very difficult. So if you add that to working on a campus that's already having declining enrollments, which probably needs declining budget, and very uh, different endowment picture. You know, that just looks a, a lot like some areas for concern. So um, I wish I had better, better news, you know, but I, what, I, what I could say. Um, now on the flip side, I, I do think that it's not, it's not a solution. It doesn't provide the funding that campuses need. It doesn't certainly provide the enrollment that campuses need. But I have seen over the last year and maybe even before the pandemic, a lot more of the cross-campus collaboration, conversations, sharing, hey, what's going on? What, what are you working on? What's been effective for you? Um, I've seen a lot more even in the, in the grant funding space, um, groups of organizations working together, putting in joint proposals and saying, hey, we can go farther together. Um, let's see if we can combine our resources. Let's pool some knowledge together and see if we can propose something that might help. So I'm optimistic that as campuses continue to struggle, that it might be an opportunity for them to work together, um, not necessarily to be competing for resources, but to say, hey, if you have a little and you're trying to do a lot, what strategies have worked for you? Maybe we could share and pair and, and do some things together. So I'm not saying misery loves company, but I am uh, I'm inspired by the idea that we won't all be out here watching individual campuses struggle so much as it will be watching and hopefully helping some campuses that need a lot of help connect to each other and make the best of a, a very difficult situation. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the those who are willing um, to kind of adjust their business model and include more collaboration and admit that they might be struggling, right? And this is this is kind of a, an issue I noticed with a, you know, coming from working obviously with mostly private nonprofit schools, there's a reluctance to uh, make that that admittance right to say mm -hmm. hey we're kind of struggling and it takes that vulnerability and it sounds weird to talk about organizational vulnerability but it is um a decision that an administration has to make to say okay we're gonna let it be known that we're yep. not at the top of our game and we're gonna go out and try to find you know access resources to help us um, whether that be collaborations or just like, unique resources that they haven't had to tap into before and and i think that's really in a lot of ways, the only way some of these schools are going to survive. And my perception of these issues or my concern about them is just whether or not it's going to affect access. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it, if we start to lose some of those smaller schools, some of those more inclusive, you know, less exclusive schools, are we are we closing doors to individuals who, you know, where that might be the closest or the easiest or the, the their their pathway, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't want I don't want to see those those doors close for them. Um, some schools that don't want to adapt, obviously you know, the, the market will, will do what it, what it will, but I hope that we're cognizant about if we're closing doors to particular types of institutions, um, that we're finding those opportunities and, and making them known to students. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And I, I have to say that, you know, it, admitting that there's room for improvement or restructuring or uh, refinement, uh, reimagining, whatever RE word we can add on top of that, remixing, you know, the business model. Uh, that's not a bad thing. And I don't think the narrative needs to be publicly that, oh my goodness, you know, this university can't manage its, you know, its strategic plan. I shouldn't go there. But instead to just be honest and say, hey, we're going through a period that's going to require us to reimagine our business model and we're looking for opportunities. I think that that creates a space for groups like associations and other nonprofits that represent a whole sector of schools like that to say, hey, we can help you with some of that. We can take the lead on providing some strategies and make those connections, you know, for you. So to your point about the schools that if they are not able to survive would end up having an access issue. Again, I think a whole lot about the regional comprehensive institutions, the ones that are located in a space that may be more rural. They serve a a great number of students who probably have no desire to go farther away for college, but they serve a great need in that community. And they may be experiencing some difficulties right now, but that doesn't mean, you know, they're doomed to failure and closure, but this is that, you know, that moment, you know, where they need a lot of help. And I I definitely think it's not just on them. Um, It's an opportunity for the organizations um, like the associations that I like to connect to, to help as well, if, if we can. Sure, absolutely. So as we start to wrap up, I'd like to um, do the pendulum swing of kind of what, beyond kind of where we, maybe where we just were, but what keeps you up at night? And on this flip token, what makes you just excited and hopeful and, and you know, loving the world of higher ed? So, so maybe take us through the pendulum of, oh. of well, it goes, it goes back and forth all the time. You know, some days <laughs> on a hard day, it's like, ah, oh, you know, when, when is it going to, it's going to get yeah. better. So, um, many issues. <laughs> so many issues, so little time, you know, but then you remind yourself like, Hey, you know, it's one bite at a time. That's one starfish. Still one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think honestly, the cost of college, I, I hear more people these days talk about it from any angle you can imagine. So it could be the announcement that just came out that, hey, uh, student loan you know, payments won't resume until early 2022. That's one aspect of it. But then there's the students who are still trying to make it work with um, need-based aid and don't, and don't have enough and may have to take out their first loan, um, rising cost of tuition, the cost to deliver. So there's two sides to this, you know, um, both not just the cost to students, but I know how much it costs to operate, you know, a college, you know, uh, I can't tell you down to dollars and cents, but I know that when you add up all those different functions, it, it costs money to actually do it. And so I'm concerned for the campuses that are trying to make a lot happen with a, a, a little, you know, right. I'm concerned about the, the individual students who are trying to make a lot happen with a little. Um, I'm concerned about the policymakers who continue to get the calls that say, hey, I'm trying to make a lot happen with a little. Um, and then I think overall, just the the narrative is college worth it. You know, so I mentioned the podcast earlier, I'm, I'm still pushing this idea that college is a worthwhile investment. And I, I believe that, which mm-hmm. then leads to my second thing. If if I didn't believe that, those things that concern me would have me to the point where I can't rest at night. 
eventually I put it to rest and I'll say, hey, that's tomorrow's thing. And amid all the challenges, I still believe that greater is the outcome for those who can go to college and choose to go to college. When you finish, it can be something that can give you the, the jump start on upward mobility, socially, financially, and otherwise. Now, there's a lot of nuance in there. Selection of, of a lot of different decisions will impact where you end up after that. But I still feel like college is one of the best decisions I ever made. I made some of my best friends there. Um, I, I truly got on a path that, that required me to figure out what I want to do with myself. You know, <laughs> I needed that type of structure, but I also need that type of flexibility. And so as long as I still believe that college is worth the investment, then I go to sleep and I get up the next day and I'm excited to start again. Um, and I expect that, that probably will be like that for the foreseeable future. So um, I remain optimistic. I love it. I love it. Well, we we do as well. I share that optimism. I believe strongly that, you know, my education path from all the way from K-12 through, uh, through my grad school days have shaped me and my career and my uh, kind of experiences along the way and allowed for all kinds of roller coaster um, opportunities and missed opportunities and learning <laughs> and learning choices and, and all of those things that we all need to make kind of a, a round fulfilling life. And it, it's, it has its basis in, in college for sure. So we really thank you for being here. It's been wonderful. I know we could just keep talking and uh, we are going to tune in and, and co-promote your podcast. I can't wait to see the kind of um, questions and answers you're getting from both your constituents and from your great guests. And um, thank you so much for the great work that you do. Uh, in higher education policy and beyond. So thank you for being here. Yeah, you're welcome. Do I have time for another shameless plug? Oh, please, this, this yes, plug away. So only because it's more more timely. Um, <laughs> later this month, my first solo book is coming out and it's called You Are a Data Person. So I didn't think about it until just now when you asked me about what keeps me up at night, but I'm making the case that everybody in higher education has a data identity. And so one of the pieces of what I feel like is going to be necessary, so it almost is, kind of ties together a lot of the questions that you gave me. I realized we were right at that point where you're about to say thank you for your time. We're going to wrap up and the theme music was probably going to come in. This is, I don't know where this, I don't know where this fits into the whole conversation. No, but I had to mention it. I had to mention it though. So yeah. I think there are a lot of key decisions that colleges and professionals who work there have to make. And oftentimes we hear the, the words data-driven decisions or data-informed decision-making, uh, strategic planning, decision support, things like that. And it was honestly, over the course of several years, people kept telling me like, hey, you know, that sounds good, Amelia, but I'm not a data person. You know, Rachel does our data work. Melanie does our assessment stuff. I, and they start confessing about the last month of stats class. And for all the reasons, you know, before them, they are not a data person. And oftentimes I say, but you are a data person. So in the book, I'm making the case that everybody has a data identity and that that data identity has six core parts. One of those things is research and analysis. So yes, you do need to have some level of ability to select whether you want it to be a survey or you want to be interviews. Methodologies matter. Can you actually do the computations? That, that makes a difference. But there are five other things that I think make a difference, one of which is communication and consultation. So being able to clearly explain what the points are within that findings set of uh, results and things like that, being able to ask a clear question, so curiosity and inquiry. I can't tell you the number of times somebody said, wouldn't it be nice to know? And then they tell you that thing, you're like, it would be nice to know, but what would we do with that? Every so often, there's somebody in the room who says, what we really need to know is this. This is the thing that we need to know most. I feel like that's a skill set. Um, industry context, so knowing what's happening at different sectors. And so the questions you asked me earlier about small colleges, and I mentioned regional comprehensive institutions and large publics, if you're somebody who is just well-versed in what's happening with the landscape, that's an asset too. Campus context matters. If you've been on a campus for 10 years, you've seen things, you've got institutional knowledge and me memory and history there. And then lastly, the ability to do strategy and planning. So putting all of these 
separate things together in a course of action. So I'm making the case that we all have a little bit of all those things. And to have all those things, you do have a data identity, which makes you a data person. And so the book is to showcase how you can figure out more for your strengths lie so that maybe the, you know, the three of us, we make a really great team. Maybe my thing is research and analysis, yours is communication, Rachel's thing might be strategy and planning, and we're better together than we are separately trying to do all this on our own. So that to me inspires me. I, I did that because I feel like that that could be enough to keep us going in the in the future. I love it. And I, it's interesting, it overlaps so well. My um one of my passions and my dissertation is on psychological contract. And it is about people's perceptions in the workplace, but it has these elements of how we decide what we think the workplace is supposed to be like when we get there. And I think that the concept, one of my passions is the concept is not, it's being studied in the context of workplace, but I think it applies to, to your selection of college. I think it applies to people's relationships, to their friendships, to all kinds of different elements, but it has to do with we, this well-rounded, this multifaceted internal analysis of what is important, which goes right, um, yep. plays right into this idea that we are all data people. We're all making these kind of assessments and judgments every day. Um, and yeah, to your point, some we're probably more comfortable making decisions in certain silos yep. than others, but we all, we all do this every day. So, mm -hmm. so wonderful. Thank you for plugging that, yes. and sharing that with us and we will look for it. It's coming out. I'm going to guess It'll probably be on Amazon, yes. Yeah, Amazon and Barnes and Noble or wherever you go to the Google and it pops up all the- It pops the up, all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. We will, I will make sure to put that, uh, the name of it also into the show notes so people can find it there. Well, thank you for not letting us leave the episode without talking about that because I love, love, love promoting um, great new concepts and of course other people's work. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been Dissecting Education with your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks, a production of In Pursuit Research, outcomes-driven, impact-focused. Thanks, and we'll see you on another episode soon.